Welcome to The Crossing, the sermon podcast from Washington National Cathedral. We're so glad you're with us, and we hope this week's episode gives you comfort and inspiration. Be sure to check out our other Crossing podcast, Tower Talks, where you can find untold stories from cathedral docents, volunteers, staff, and artists who have each helped make the cathedral into the national treasure we all love. And now, enjoy this week's sermon. Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. The temple that stood in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus was, by any estimation, a structure of striking size and grandeur. Josephus, a first-century Jewish historian whose writings include a very detailed description of the temple's layout and ornamentation, noted this. It was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight, and at the first rising of the sun, reflected back a very fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away. This temple appeared to strangers when they were coming to it at a distance, like a mountain covered with snow. This second temple was not the first on the site it occupied, as the name suggests. The first temple was constructed under the rule of King Solomon, and then destroyed in 586 BCE by the Babylonians, who subsequently forced many of the Israelite people into exile. Some 50 years later, the exiles returned and began the work of rebuilding the temple. This second temple was completed around 515 BCE and then substantially refurbished and greatly expanded 500 years later by Herod the Great, known to us from the New Testament as the same Herod whom the wise men visited in Matthew chapter 2. This refurbished and expanded second temple was the one Jesus knew, one where he spent so much time teaching and healing. It was the center of Jewish religious practice and identity, where sacrifices were offered every day, where pilgrims flocked for the annual pilgrimage festivals. In a way not dissimilar to this cathedral, the supreme splendor and size of the structure was meant to inspire awe, offering a sense of stability, and serving as a sign of God's presence among the people. Holding these things in mind, the magnitude of Jesus' words from the opening of today's gospel text is made all the clearer. When some commented on how beautifully adorned the temple was with gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, 
The days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. This structure of such significance, such beauty and stature would one day be no more. Jesus' declaration truly must have surprised and unsettled those who heard it. If not even the glorious temple would survive, what would the future hold? In proclaiming the future destruction of the temple, Jesus points to a fundamental, if often neglected, reality. Nothing of this life lasts forever. Not the money we seek to accumulate, not our jobs or careers, not great empires or rulers, not status or reputation, not even, of course, our own lives and those of whom we love. Here is something that few, if any of us would deny as an abstract truth, but one which almost all of us struggle with and resist, especially when it comes to confronting our own mortality. Talking about death makes us uncomfortable. Modern advances in science and medicine have both extended life expectancy and created a significant distance between the living on the one hand and the process and act of dying on the other. As recently as 80 years ago, most deaths occurred in the home where individuals were surrounded by family and loved ones. Now, so many die in the impersonal and institutionalized environment of a hospital room. I think these recent developments only increase our discomfort with death and conversations related to it. Yet, no matter how hard we try to avoid it, no matter the ongoing advances in medicine, the unavoidable reality is that all of us will one day die, a fact we are solemnly confronted with each year at the start of Lent, when ashes are imposed on our foreheads and these words ring in our ears. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The question of how, in light of our mortality and limitations, to live a life of purpose and meaning is one I find endlessly compelling and important, one I read and think about with great frequency. Without question, the most powerful reflection on death, mortality, and how to live in the face of it that I have ever come across is contained in the deeply moving book by Paul Kalanathi entitled, When Breath Becomes Air. It tells the life story of the author, a man driven to pursue and understand questions of life, death, and purpose. His interests in these questions led him to medical school where he eventually settled into neurosurgery, a demanding specialty that, in his view, offered the closest 
contact with questions of meaning, identity, and death. Nearing the end of his residency, having completed years of grueling and taxing training, standing on the verge of what promised to be a hugely successful career, Kalanithi was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer at the age of 36. As he writes, and with that, the future I had imagined, the one just about to be realized, the culmination of decades of striving, evaporated. This man who had dedicated his life to improving the lives of others and helping them navigate questions of meaning in the face of death was suddenly forced to confront the question himself much sooner than either he expected or many felt he deserved. In such a situation, most of us, quite understandably, I should say, might find ourselves sinking into a sort of debilitating despair. Why me is the question that would likely arise for most of us. Kalanithi instead asked, why not me? My feeble words are an inadequate testament to the elegance and poignancy with which he writes of his journey after his diagnosis. I encourage you to read his words yourself to fully grasp the power of his narrative. In the face of imminent death, he refused to turn away but kept on living, identifying those things that he most valued and found meaningful and then pursued them vigorously. He did not shrink away, but moved forward authentically, courageously, yet not denying the truth or resting on a false hope that he would somehow overcome his illness. He continued his work as a surgeon, something he loved to do as long as was physically possible. After much deliberation, he and his wife decided to have a child, knowing full well that this child would almost certainly never come to know her father or have any memories of him. And of significant importance to him, he continued to write so that his testimony would live on for those who came after. He continued to write up till the very end when the aggressive cancer that plagued his body finally ended his life. Near the end of his book, and by implication the end of his life, he writes the following. Everyone succumbs to finitude, the future instead of the ladder toward the goals of life, flattens out into a perpetual present. Money, status, all the vanities the preacher of Ecclesiastes described hold so little interest, a chasing after wind indeed. He continues, yet one thing cannot be robbed of her futurity, our daughter, there is perhaps only one thing to say to this infant who is all future, overlapping briefly with me, whose life, barring the improbable, 
is all but past. Do not, I pray, discount that you filled a dying man's days with a joy unknown to me in all my prior years, a joy that does not hunger for more and more, but rests satisfied. In this time, right now, that is an enormous thing. And thus his writing ends, cut short, just as his life. When my time comes to depart this earth, I pray I have even a small portion of the wisdom and courage that Paul Kalanithi showed in facing death. His story may seem tragically unique. After all, dying in your 30s from cancer is quite rare and seems to us such a cruel fate. The truth, however, is that all of us must confront the same questions he did. Faced with our own mortality, how will we choose to live? What gives our life meaning and purpose? In short, what makes this life worth living? The grace for most of us, of course, is that the urgency of the questions is considerably less pressing than it was for him. Less urgent, perhaps, but no less important. Luke's Gospel tells us that when some commented on the beauty and grandeur of the temple, Jesus, in essence, says, this won't last. They respond with such a human question, when will this be? Jesus speaks of signs and terrible things to come, wars, insurrections, betrayals, imprisonment, and trials. But he never gives a direct answer to their question. When will this be? The same is true for us. We know that things come to an end, but most often we are not gifted with the specific knowledge of when. The gospel response, a message we hear each Advent is, be vigilant, keep awake. It's a call to pay attention, to be in a sense very alive to life, to always remember just how fragile this life is and to live with that in mind. Now this is not some sort of morbid obsession with death, expecting it to find us at every turn, but instead it is an attentive, reflective posture to life that takes nothing for granted and returns often to gratitude. Of course, in the Christian context, any discussion of death and our mortality must ultimately come to the Christian hope and our assurance that nothing, not even death, will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. At the last, we will be united with God in a place where there is no pain or suffering, no mourning, no weeping, no death, simply life forevermore. That is indeed cause for great hope Yet at the same time, it is not an invitation for us to ignore this life and spend our time sitting around 
and waiting for the promise of the glorious age to come. The question is, what to do with the gift of life God has given us? The invitation Jesus offers us is to follow him in the way of discipleship, to give ourselves up to his service, and to find there a freedom and a peace the world cannot give. Jesus offers us as well the example of his own life, dedicating himself so fully to loving, healing, and serving others he freely gave himself up to death on a cross, only to rise victorious from the grave, trampling down death and bringing us with him from death into new life. The question is then, what will we do with the time given to us? How can we live a life filled with meaning and purpose? Jesus says, follow me, and I will show you the way. Amen.